Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking shitty basis. We're talking mermaid tail picks. And we're talking the 1980s disco Poland version of Christina Aguilera and Cher's iconic musical flop Burlesque. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking Tritoyush, Tritoyush, Tritoyush. <laughs> really? We're bringing the Polish into it so early? Oh my, uh, it's literally a, a phrase that is repeated ad nauseum <laughs> for, I want to say, two minutes of this movie. <laughs> Look, I'm terrified. I don't like it when we do the horn films that require me to basically expose the fact that I cannot do foreign sounding names or places polish fuck <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know it very well but everyone we, we are discussing adnieszka's Schmoczynska's the lure and yes i mean whoa <laughs> we are so late to this party i feel like everybody else has covered this and i'm excited this was the first time watch for me this was a third time watch for me. I definitely saw it at its uh, screening at Fantastic Fest. And then I watched it with my husband and former guest of the show, uh, Jenny Nolf. And my husband fucking hated this movie with a fiery what? passion. Oh, he hates this movie. Really? But we okay. also watched it at a Halloween party. So like the setting mm. was not good okay. for, to watch a movie like this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, but no, th there are so many things to discuss in this shockingly 90 minute movie. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Joe, but why, why don't we bring some wanted to talk about this because i uh, fuck it we need it um all right everyone she is a content editor and staff writer at film cred with additional bylines at sites like slash film and dread central she is also the owner and founder of the horror blog we who walk here please welcome jessica scott hello i'm so excited to be here so excited to talk about the lure yeah welcome 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 well jessica why are you excited to talk about the lure enlighten us <laughs> well you don't see many Polish disco killer mermaid <laughs> musicals, so I'm super jazzed about that. Now, I, because I was late to the party on this movie, too. Mm -hmm. um, I had heard so many people talking about how great it was. I only watched it for the first time earlier this year, and I was like, everyone was right. I was missing out on killer disco mermaids. Mm. Why was this not in my life earlier? So <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited to talk about it. Yeah, that, that's how it was for me too. I remember that the program at Fantastic Fest, it's just like, yeah, Polish horror mermaid musical. And I was like, well, just I like... What? <laughs> I, like, I mean, I don't know if I like Polish. I don't, I don't have a lot of experience with Polish, but like, I like the other stuff. So <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. let's try this. <laughs> and I was telling Joe this last night. It's a movie where... It is a movie that I don't find myself particularly entertained by while I'm watching it. I'm not bored, but I'm fascinated by every second of this movie as it crosses my eyes. Exactly. Like, it's not a feel-good film. It's not a comfort mm. watch. I'm, I'm sure it's a comfort watch for somebody because everything's a comfort watch yeah. for somebody. Right. Um, but it's it's just so fascinating. You're just enthralled the whole time. And if, 
even when you're not sure what's happening or yeah, yeah. there there were there are times that confuse me but i enjoyed the confusion it's a vibe right yes yes well it also feels like a collage of genres and interests that don't necessarily intersect regularly or maybe shouldn't be complementary so when you're like, oh, it's 1980s and Poland and mermaids and musical, you're just like, wait, are we doing a Mad Libs game? No <laughs> one should be trying this. It should not work. And yet, yeah, there's something super captivating about this movie. Yeah, and I think we're going to try to figure out what that one thing is. What is the one thing about this <laughs> movie that is so captivating? Only one, Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, why don't we why don't we go into this? Because I feel like we have a lot to unpack with the plot itself, and the production is, uh, I think, pretty interesting. Uh, no trouble here, luckily. This seemed to be a, I don't know, they just said, let's make this movie, and they got to make it, which, God, that sounds <laughs> awesome. Wait, no Weinsteins anywhere in sight? I'm <laughs> no shocked. Weinsteins. <laughs> Um, okay, and I will say that most of this, or I'm sorry, all of this, is from the Criterion Blu-ray's 40-minute making of featurette that is on this Blu-ray. So, nice. here we go. Um, so yes, director Agnieszka Szmoczynska spent most of her childhood in the restaurant her mom worked at, uh, up until she was about the age of 12. And it was a restaurant that had a dance floor, so I don't know what you would call that. It's just <laughs> like a, it's not a club, but it is a restaurant, but... That's it. Mm -hmm. Because of this, she was exposed to more adult content at an early age than most of us probably were. Um, while in film school, she met screenwriter Robert Bolesto, and they collaborated on Smochinska's short films. Uh, and one day he messaged her saying he wanted to make a film with her, and he already had the title. And this title was The Daughters of Disco. Oh, Okay. <laughs> So he had two friends who grew up in the in dance clubs. And so, again, we have Smochinska, who's, like, raised in a restaurant, and then these other two singers who were raised in a club. Uh, they have many wild stories about what it was like to grow up there. And he was like, well, we have to tell your story. And because Smochinska grew up in that restaurant environment, he was like, ooh, she's the perfect one to collaborate with on this. The two friends that Bolesto had were Basha and Zuzanina Rowinska. They comprise the Polish pop band Balalady i Romansa, uh, which is basically just ballads and romance in English. When Balesto approached them about making a film about them, Basha said no. Uh, she felt that it was too <laughs> it was too personal. No. Like it was, they, no. they didn't want she didn't want a bio, biopic made about them. She was like, right. that is too like that, that's encroaching on some dangerous territory for mm -hmm. us. So he was like, okay, well, I still want to make this movie, mm -hmm. but I still want to make it about you, but I can't right. make it. About you. What can we do? What can we do? <laughs> mermaids. Yes! <laughs> the obvious choice. It hit him. He's like, one day, he just said, mermaids. I, I, I've got it. I, I just it. woke up one day and I was like, you know what? Mermaids. <laughs> <laughs> so once he brought this idea to the sisters, uh, Basho was okay with this. So the title switched from the Daughters of Disco to the Lure. And of course, um, to give... The Rowinskas a stamp on the film, they are going to be doing the music for it as well. Nice. Okay. In the early stages, Smochinska and Balesto knew that they wanted to show audiences a world that a child would experience in a dance club environment, and to include things like spying on people having sex in bathrooms, um, having your first cigarette, having your first alcoholic beverage, um, things like that that we do see in this film. 
the film would act as a way to depict a personal transformation, the loss of your world and previous identity as you emerge into this new, unexplored one. Wait, so are you saying a part of your world? <laughs> <laughs> I intentionally left out any reference to The Little Mermaid, but, uh, but yes, I mean, th- I mean th- this is a loose adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid with mm-hmm. tidbits of Homer's Odyssey thrown in there. You betcha. I mean, as, of course, everyone doesn't know. Um, Disney liked to, um, I'll use the phrase water down their fairy tales. Um, the original <laughs> Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale obviously is very dark and very yeah. upsetting and um, pretty much uh, has our mermaid die by suicide by choosing not to murder an asshole prince. <laughs> <sighs> anyway. So they wanted to set this in the 80s because this was a story being told from their point of view, um, children of the 80s. And uh, when I say the 80s, I'm not just being like, oh, like fun 80s that we know in America. This is communist Poland in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And the perspective of people that were children of the time is not often done, really, in film or anything. So when older Polish people actually critiqued the lore for not being a realistic portrayal of the era, especially since, in reality, uh, that, that era of Poland was drab, had a very gray aesthetic, so there wasn't a lot of color. Yeah, just a little grim, right? A little bit, but Bolesław's defense was always that this was told from a child's perspective, and what does a child see but a world full of color? Hmm. When it came to the influences on the film, oh, Joe, this is for you, by the way. Oh. <laughs> Bolesto said he incorporated many elements of a 1983 cult film from Poland called Academia Pana Kleksa, which is based on a series of surreal children's stories and is filled with songs and bizarre imagery. And I kind of looked up some pictures of this. It, it kind of has a Willy Wonka vibe to it, at least in terms of aesthetic. Ooh. Okay. I'm but, intrigued. This, this is the part that's for you, Joe. Bolesto said he always envisioned the lore as a cross between that film and David Cronenberg's Crash. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, folks, go and listen to our episode on Crash when we guested on the Windsor Film Club. Yes. So the musical element, okay, so this is this is what I find so fascinating, right? Because you know, normally you get it, you have a script, you write it, um, boom, cool, let's film the script. This did not work that way. Um, They had to write the script in a different way than usual. So Balesto wrote a treatment. And that treatment was then given to the Wawinska sisters, who began working on the music and lyrics. So they did all the composing first, based just on the story beats that Balesto had included in his treatment. And then... Once they did all the compositions, Smoczynska would then build the film around the sounds that she was getting from them. And also involved was sound designer Marcin Lenerchik, who began working on the overall sound design for the film after Balesto turned in his first draft of the script. So Lenerchik had a script solely for the sound that Balesto mm. then used to write his dialogue. <laughs> oh, wow. So unconventional. It's... I, I my brain does not work this way, and I don't understand how anyone can do this. <laughs> Creatives, they're not just like us. <laughs> oh, God. Well, so another thing, though, is that Poland doesn't really have a history of musicals. So, you know, like for a, a lot of countries, they have musicals. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is an American musical. This is a Russian musical, blah, 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 blah. Poland doesn't have that. There was no tradition of Polish musicals that they could draw inspiration from, so this turned out to be what could have been bad, actually a blessing for them, because what they thought was, well, then we get to define what a Polish musical is. Right, yeah. 
They got to make their own rules. They didn't have to be stuck in an old style of cinema, but in an effort to give the musical a new and some might say revolutionary quality, they looked at three different ways you could film a musical. So first way, this is the more traditional way or classical musical where everyone is singing instead of talking, there's dancers everywhere. And uh, the example of this in the lore is the big mall set piece, I think. Yes. Admittedly, this is my favorite type of musical. And so in this film and I'll say even La La Land both have numbers like this to kick off the film and then they don't dip back into this well later. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I find it frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> no, give me what I want. <laughs> yeah. Um, then there is the second way. The, and I'm going to call this the cabaret approach. And this is where the only time people sing is when they are performing in the world of the film. So right. You have a, a lounge singer singing in the dance club in, uh, in, in the lure. Or, you know, what they did in the cabaret musical was they removed any and all songs from the musical that weren't done in the cabaret. <laughs> so the mm -hmm. only songs people were singing were cabaret numbers. Right. Yeah. And then the third way, and this was deemed the most poetic way to film a musical, and that is the music video style, in which we see... Um, Honestly, I think that, that Trittel Yush number that I was talking about earlier, um, when we're just kind of having the camera follow around the apartment as we're just looking at all these people passed out from the night before, that's right. that visual aesthetic for this. Yeah. Rather than pick one of these ways. <laughs> <laughs> extra, extra, extra. <laughs> they decided to incorporate all of them into the lore, and the challenge was combining them all into a cohesive whole. So major influences were films like Bob Fosse's All That Jazz and Cabaret, as well as Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> and all I know about that is that that's the movie that like Bjork will never work with him again because of what he did to her on that movie. That's all I know about it. Yeah, he's terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that movie is fucking amazing. Hmm. It is. Hmm. It is devastating, but it's so oh, good. It breaks my soul. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, are you feeling a depressive episode coming on? Well, let's just ease into that. Yeah. Yeah, Lars von Trier, man. Well, okay. So remember, though, it's not just music we're talking about here. We still have to have a story and a script. So. In terms of visual language, it was decided that any scripted scenes without singing and only dialogue had to be told as simply as possible. They would film with a handheld camera using up-close uh, shots with the characters, a minimal number of shots, uh, and a minimal number of cuts. In contrast, any time music is happening, the style of filmmaking becomes more complex, experimental, and, uh, for lack of a better term, fun. Hmm. They also wanted to make a clear divide between the worlds that existed both behind and in front of the curtain. So, you know, the club is full of, is a world full of glamour, bright colors and lights. Backstage, it's all sorrow, fatigue and an overall sense of grossness, which is why almost all of the lighting in the behind the scenes shots are fluorescent lighting. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty stark. <laughs> so I think one thing we can all agree about the lore, though, is that it's a it's kind of unclassifiable, right? Like it, it's a musical, it's a horror movie, it's a comedy, it's a coming of age story, it's a cautionary tale, it's a story about sisterly bonds, it's a story about first love, it's a lot. Uh, so Smachinska and Blesto are well aware of this, with Smachinska even saying that the film itself is like the mermaids themselves, a grotesque creation, half beautiful creature and half monster. Hmm. 
but the whole time while making this, she said she's aware that it, the film walks a fine line, bordering both on bad taste and emotional blackmail. Uh, it it really? was important to her to keep stretching that line very, very thin so that the audience and the characters would follow, but she didn't want to cross the line while at the same time not playing it too safe. Uh, her reasoning being that the film is about a passage or an initiation crossing a certain border, and those things are inherently messy. So this film should be as well. That is fascinating. I don't find anything in this movie to be bad taste. I I thought about this too. I, I don't know if, if you agree, Jessica. I, I'm assuming maybe it's the fact that we are taking what are typically believed to be cute creatures and making mm-hmm. them horrific monsters even though historically mm-hmm. there have like that is how mermaids yeah. have been portrayed it's just not the mainstream idea of what a mermaid is because of disney yeah i th- that's probably where she was going with that but i'm i'm definitely on the side of the film that i like kind of reclaiming like no this is what a mermaid actually is right and you know don't don't believe the hype from disney you know <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also, I mean, like, look, I, I know, I know that we aren't dealing with actual children here, but the emotional maturity of these mermaids is that of preteen girls. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I wonder too if the fact that we, like the subject matter is that it is essentially a sexual tale of preteen girls maybe mm-hmm. is delving into bad taste. But to me, that's just like no, that's just realistic. But you know, whatever. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's just European as well. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um, so moving on to the mermaids themselves, uh, casting, t- sorry, they filmed this movie in 30 days. What? Casting took a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, you want to make sure you get this right, because if you don't have the right two women playing these roles, the whole movie doesn't work. Exactly, exactly. So they saw about 2,000 girls with Marta Mazurik, who plays Silver, being cast first, and uh, Mihalina Olshanska, who plays Golden, came coming later. They trained, so, the, hey, despite the fact that this was a 30-day shoot, the rehearsal period for this was very, very, very long. They trained for several months because they had to not only swim and sing, but they also had to train their bodies to be beasts, not just in appearance, but also deep inside. Um, they had to learn how, to, how a creature used to know gravity would walk and move and dance on a world with gravity. Hmm. They had to get used to being naked, but also with that, they couldn't appear embarrassed or be self-conscious by their nudity, but they also couldn't flaunt it. So (laughs) in their performances, they had to be utterly devoid of human shame, pride, and awareness. Hmm. Hmm. So watching this film, I'm kind of like, I don't ever feel like the film is sexualizing these creatures, but everyone around them is sexualizing them. Exactly. I think that's the key part that keeps it from going into bad taste because right. I think they did an amazing job. I I would like to know what kind of exercises they did in order mm-hmm. to get the human shame out of it. You know what I mean? Like, how do you oh train God. for that? <laughs> Can we all train for that oh a little bit? Oh my God, no kidding. Well, and I think that's where it becomes like, the, to me, it's like a childlike innocence, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, I guess like how, if we're going biblical, like Adam and Eve not knowing that being naked was bad until they were told but being naked was bad. So I don't know. I, I, I do get that from these performances, though. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, but I, I watched that um, that documentary earlier today, actually. Um, I had not seen the documentary before. Mm-hmm. But I the first time I saw the movie, I was so struck by how animalistic they are. Even just, yeah. you know, their, their gestures and their eyes. And I wondered if they were dancers because of how they were able to tune into that part of themselves. 
Yeah, I almost get um, like a similar vibe to the dancers who become actors in Climax in Gaspar Noé's mm. film, where it it feels like they have a better sense of control over their bodies than traditional actors only do. Mm-hmm. Continue on, Trace. <laughs> no, I, I, no I, I'm just thinking that because I mean, like, and that's where like, again, like, you know, they worked with this really famous Polish choreographer. Mm-hmm. But it's the thing where it's like, yeah, I think people when they think choreography, they think, OK, it's just dancing. But it's not that mm-hmm. like <laughs> she was yeah. working with them in the pools, uh, all this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I, I I always wonder what kind of like a job description a choreographer is. Right. Like, like <laughs> what, what are your lines? Like, I will do this. I won't do that. Well, right, because they had to learn how to use the tails as well, right? Well, yeah. So, like, these tails, (laughs) (laughs) they were six to seven feet long, and... The actresses said 55 feet, uh, 55 pounds in weight, but then uh, Smoczynska said they were 90 pounds in oh weight. God. So whenever the girls had to be moved, um, so they used pedals, which I think were inside the tail mechanisms to mm-hmm. uh, move them around. But whenever they were picked up, it took three men to pick up the girls and their tails to move them to the next location. <laughs> Those girls are thick. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but it is, they are practical effects. I think the only time they use CGI is when they're, when they're turning on screen. Mm-hmm. So um, the lure had its world premiere in Poland on December 16th, 2015, before hitting the festival circuit in 2016, beginning with Sundance in January. And it pretty much spent all of that year screening at festivals before finally getting a limited theatrical North American release on February 1st, 2017. And in a rarity, I think, it became part of the Criterion Collection that same year when they wow. released a Blu-ray of it on October 10th. Yeah, I remember when we were planning our underrated or underseen series, we heavily debated whether or not to program this. And then we were like, oh, my God, this is one of those movies where it's like, do we put it in 2015? Do we put it in 2017? (laughs) And ultimately, we decided to go with another film, knowing that we were going to cover it later on this year. But it's just like, God damn, these films that do these (laughs) elongated festival (laughs) process. I mean, but admittedly, if there's one that's going to have a really long festival run, because it would be the lure because again i could just imagine a bunch of buyers being like what, what do i do with this, this? <laughs> <laughs> what do i even do with this uh, but but that being said it got rave reviews from critics uh we're looking at 89 percent on rotten tomatoes with an average score of 7.1 out of 10 and letterbox users have awarded it a score of 6.8 out of 10 uh so i mean generally speaking this is a very highly a very well regarded film but it's also a film that i wouldn't just like show people (laughs) i'm kind of shocked by those numbers i like this movie a lot but this is not a movie for everyone i would have thought that this would have been sort of firmly down the middle Mm -hmm. well and that's the thing too right because again i hear mermaid horror (laughs) musical just list them all (laughs) yeah that's why I'm glad that they talked about the different kinds of musicals, right? Because, again, when I hear a musical, I have a very certain type of movie or a musical mm. in my head. And so, honestly, my first viewing, I liked this film, but it was kind of like, oh, but it wasn't giving me what I wanted because it kept go- trying a different thing <laughs> every right. scene. And it's one that I've kind of warmed more to every time I watch it. But because I think, honestly, you could watch this film a hundred times and still not get everything the movie is doing. Yes. There's a lot. There's a lot going on in this movie, which is funny because when you read some of the reviews, they say, oh, it's a very simple, straightforward story. (laughs) You know, like we've seen this all before. And I'm like, have we? Where have we seen this before? (laughs) 
I think narratively, I think yes. narratively it is a simple story, but the, the, I say problem. Oh my God. It's not a problem, but the, 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 the crux is there's so many underlying themes and mm-hmm. metaphors going on here that it, it does make it complicated. So I think if you come in and you want just a straightforward story, you can get it. But I think if you don't have those extra underlying things, it, it doesn't really, it's not a satisfying viewing experience. Yeah. For for example, because I often compare my plot summaries for the episodes to the Wikipedia page to be like, am I doing too much? Am I doing too little? <laughs> the Wikipedia plot synopsis for this movie is like maybe three to four paragraphs long. Mm-hmm. My plot summary initially came in at four pages, and then I had to distill it down to two and a half. And I feel like if you're just doing plot, like if you're saying, what are the important narrative beats? You could do like, okay, girls take up shop in this club, (laughs) sing numbers, fall in love with boy, doesn't end well, bad. (laughs) But like, there's so much more to it than that. Yes, yes. Jessica, in general, are you a fan of musicals? I am. I love okay. musicals. Yeah. yeah, I'm so happy about that. <laughs> no, because I, 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 I know some people who are like vehemently against musicals. And I, oh, of course. The thing I always say is I'm always like, look, just imagine they're speaking the dialogue. Like that's, mm-hmm. it is, I mean, if we learn anything, the Buffy musical, it's that a musical is, hey, when someone bursts into song, they are literally singing their feelings. And I feel like right. for some people, all they much. hear is singing, but they don't hear the words people are singing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say that's one of my favorite things about this movie, but I there are so many things I love about this movie. But the, <laughs> the lyrics are so melancholy and so right. dark, even though mm-hmm. we're having this, you know, disco number where everybody's, you know, it's like Happy. a disco burlesque. Yeah, exactly. I love there's so much discordance in this movie and so many, so many contrasts mm-hmm. that right. it's just so beautiful i when i was watching it um re-watching it i kept coming back to phil specter's wall of sound which oh. i think makes a lot of sense with the way it was produced the way you know the composers and the writer and the sound designer and the director all work together it feels more like a cinematic wall of sound than almost any other movie i've ever seen in the hmm. way the themes work together and the different departments work together it's just a different theatrical experience and i mm-hmm. can totally see why people would dislike this movie because it's not for everybody but i'm just so fascinated by it well and what i would say is though so if you're a horror fan like again like all these descriptors have kind of like been like oh like that sounds really interesting but but you are not into musicals i would actually argue that the fact that this is a foreign film is a benefit for you because no one understands what they're saying so all you are forced to read the lyrics as if it were dialogue but you get to listen to music while you're reading it (laughs) and honestly these songs are on point like not only are a lot of them really catchy musically speaking but when you are reading the lyrics of these songs it's really obvious you know oh okay this is interior monologues of these characters it is advancing the plot it is contributing to the character arcs yes yeah yeah, mm-hmm. it just always makes me so mad when people brush off musicals. It's like, no, oh. like, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it is. I get it. I get it that they're not for everybody, but it's yeah, it's like 
do you understand the form? <laughs> I think I think it really is though. People, it's, it's that traditional musical that I like. So you know, people are like, "Oh, it's mm-hmm. Oklahoma." Like, yeah, I, I get it. It's not like that, but Fuck it is. Fuck like you! That. I like Oklahoma. I do well, too. No, <laughs> I know. I'm not saying it's bad. Yeah. But I, th- I think that people, like, yeah, they have uh, they seven brothers, brothers, like those types of musicals, The Sound of Music, and they're like, "Oh God, it's so boring." They just keep singing. It's like, well, listen to what they're singing. <laughs> yes. Listen to what they're singing, and maybe you'll like get it. And right. I would think that approaching it from the three different kinds of musicals, like yes. half of this movie just feels like a Fiona Apple video, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> there's something for everybody. <laughs> truly, truly. Mm. So many different types of musical. Mm-hmm. But, but okay, So let's go into this plot, Joe. Okay. So I'm going to acknowledge that I'm going to draw on a couple of different articles, one by Annette Lapique called Mythical Puberty and the Discotheque. And another one by Sarah Francesca called Discover the Flavor of Things Denied to You. So um, we'll begin with Fonseca because she has a kind of interesting introductory piece that is very helpful. Uh, By the way, her piece is from Clio Journal, and it does draw heavily on the queer subtext of this film. So she says, by causing identity crises in men and drawing reverence from women, the mermaid has always had a bit of a reputation for gender and sexual deviance. The mermaid inevitably swam to North America and was appropriated by 1970s lesbian feminist subcultures, (laughs) which to me is interesting because this movie is set in 1980s, but also... If you start to think of the prevalence of mermaids in culture, sometimes they're desexualized, sometimes they are associated with things like the sirens, which we'll see in this movie, but also they're associated with a kind of um, sexualization, right? So there's a deviance to it, there's a bestiality to it. We talked about this briefly, Trace, just a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Robert Pattinson wanting to fuck that mermaid in the lighthouse. <laughs> Um, And if folks are interested in hearing more, I would encourage you to seek out a queer movie that we will cover eventually on the podcast called Blew My Mind, which I love. Yes, but that's the one where you don't want to look at any image from it because every image is from the end of the movie, right? Yeah, I mean, you're you're almost not meant to know it's a mermaid film, but it's like, you know what? It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) I compare it. I compare it to Ginger Snaps. It's basically the mermaid version of Ginger Snaps. Gotcha. Which is um, just a horror version of Disney's The 13th Year. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is the horror version of something else. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So with that in mind that like mermaids are part of a lesbian culture, but also like heavily sexualized and appropriated. Let's go into this movie. So we open with animated credits by painter Alexandra Valesco Zuska. And the film opens on two mermaids. So we have Silver, who, as you mentioned, Trace is played by Marta Zarek. And she is the blonde one, by the way, because you would Mm -hmm. think that Golden would be the blonde haired one. And it is not. And it confused me for a lot of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And then we also have Golden, who is played by Mikalina Olsansky. And she is the brunette. And they are attempting to lure in a father and son. So uh, apparently the father, who I'm going to refer to as Perkasista, who is played by Andres Kanopka, he, Perkasiska, is just drummer. Yes, I was like, it's just drummer. So you can just call him the drummer if you want. That's not a name. (laughs) Chris is like, let me make it easy for you. (laughs) 
And of course, the more important character is Mytek, the son, and he is played by Jakob Gersal. And basically, the mermaids are lured out of the water because Mytek is drumming, like kind of making music and so on on the shore of the beach. And they're like, hmm... Should we lure him into the water and eat him or <laughs> what should we do with them? So they decide, yeah, let's definitely eat these boys. So they try to lure the men into the water. And that only stops when the mother, Chrysia, who is played by Kinga Price, screams. And then we get this title card. So it's very abrupt, almost confronting like, wait, what is happening? We only know that there are mermaids trying to lure men into the water. Well, and it's kind of a joke, right? Like, I feel like, I feel like Chrissia's laugh, because <laughs> it's interrupting this almost like sexual moment, right? Between mm-hmm. the mermaids and Mytek. But then we like, it blends into the, the Donna Summer song that we're about to get to kick off the opening credits. This scene actually was originally longer. Um, there was an extended opening where it's like, oh, like Chrissa comes down and she like, start, tries to touch the mermaids. Mm. And once she touches them and she's like, oh, they're safe. Then we cut to the title. Oh. And I don't like that as much. No, <laughs> no I think it's, it's really important that this is giving us just enough information. I'll confess, as a first-time viewer, I didn't even realize that this was the family unit that we're going to watch perform for most of the film i thought that these were random people and so when we open on chrissia singing yeah donna summer's disco smash i feel love i was like cool okay we're we're transitioning over to a different thing i didn't even realize that was the same character (laughs) (laughs) so you gotta watch it a hundred more times (laughs) (laughs) clearly yeah or or just pay more fucking attention yeah (laughs) in your defense she changes hair Right? At least 20 times in this movie. <laughs> she looks like someone because she, the, 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 the promotional image that's always used for this movie is the one of her in the sailor outfit with them mm-hmm. behind her and they're like, you know, sailor yep. outfits. She looks like, God, I couldn't, uh, she just looks like someone, like an American actress. I can't figure out who it is. But yeah, she changes her hair constantly in this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. The wig game is on point. <laughs> <laughs> Although I must say she, in a few scenes, was giving me chicken lady vibes from the kids in the hall. Ooh, I'm yeah. so sorry, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we do open with this number. So we get um, almost the entirety of I Feel Love, which is interesting because it is sung in English, but it has that sort of distinctly European vibe. So as a North American audience, it's giving me kind of uncanny feelings. I took a moment to realize this was set in the 1980s. So I don't know, like this opening sequence is very important for establishing a mood and a tone, but also... I think the choice to go with a very familiar American song is a smart one because we are like, oh, I recognize the song. Oh, it's a musical. Okay, I'm fine. Well, that's it. (laughs) That's the only thing you're going to be familiar with. (laughs) Enjoy it. It's the last one. Yeah. So we then follow the house manager who is played by Zygmunt Malowicz. I'm going to mispronounce all these names. I apologize to any (laughs) Polish listeners we have. And he investigates an unusual smell. So we we follow sort of in gentle tracking shots throughout this club from the performance area to the bar, to the kitchen, to the back office, as he's like interrogating women about a smell that he just says is unusual, but we don't really know what he means. And we later come to realize, oh, he's smelling a fishy smell. 
and right <laughs> and i have thoughts and i have a reading about this but um essentially we we get to him stumbling upon golden and silver jumping like children on the couch in the back office and chrissia claims that they are her friend's kids do you want to ju- jump into the fishy vagina uh, <laughs> of it all <laughs> I mean, I think it's important that this is established right up front. So obviously there's been talk about how this film is commentary on immigrant status, but also sex trafficking and the abuse of minors and so on. So like, I think it's really important that this man who we don't know much about, but he's running this burlesque club is immediately presented with two very clearly underage girls who are made to strip naked who are revealed to have no genitalia beneath the waist. Then, you know, they're described as smooth as Mattel dolls. And then we flick water on them, and suddenly they have these tails that we can also stick a finger into the slit. I, I almost, I, mean, I just think it's interesting. Because, hey, hey, hey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. Um, so I, I don't think it's, a, it's an accident that he's walking around interrogating women about this fishy smell. Because no, of course not. No. I... <laughs> God, this is terrible. Um, um, dad, please don't listen to this. When I was growing up, my dad would always, when we had crawfish boils and shrimp boils and crab boils, whenever, mm-hmm. whenever he would open the shrimp bag, he would always be like, it smells like bad cooter. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. So, but I feel like that's like a stigma on women. It's like, it uh, for this. And so I, I don't think it's a mistake that we have this lecherous club manager being like, smells like fish, must be a woman. I mean, it is in this case, but you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels like a joke, right? Yes, very much so. Absolutely. Like, there's so many jokes about, you know, misogyny and the patriarchy and this disgusting man interrogating, you know, the women dancing for him, the woman in the kitchen with the low-cut blouse, and everything Mm -hmm. is really sexualized and emphasized to the nth degree. But yeah, that's absolutely, we're thrown into the grotesquery right away. Right. Where we see how these girls are victimized and objectified and they're not quite sure what's going on and yeah it is absolutely no accident that he's only asking women this question well mm-hmm. and actually too i mean i'm going back to the bad taste conversation from earlier but like this man fingers their slit their tail slit yeah. so yeah. he is sexually assaulting them yeah. they don't mind because they're so naive they don't really well they don't care but I don't, they don't like realize that i guess that's what's happening or something mm-hmm. But if we're talking about, yeah, like, I mean, going into sex trafficking and, like, the way that children can be uh, taken advantage of, their innocence can be taken advantage of, mm-hmm. that's this right here. And I would yep. think that, um, I mean, if we're talking about bad taste, it's, yeah, this old man fingering uh, these preteens. Yeah, yeah, these yeah. young girls. Yeah. Yeah, so Fonseca ends up making that same observation. She says, the sequence punks the obsession repulsion with the vagina by courting the desire for hairlessness, symmetry, and cleanliness to the extreme, Mm. and then denying the titillated voyeur entry. So we might have a kind of perverse pleasure in wanting to see, oh, okay, these girls are stripping naked, and it's appropriate because it's a burlesque club, and they're sort of consenting because they don't seem to be protesting. But the, the confrontation of seeing, oh, they literally have nothing going on beneath the waist is a very arresting image. And then, of course, we get the visual payoff with seeing these ginormous tails. And then we have to watch him finger the slit, which are just like, oh, fuck off. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And well, also, uh, I mean, I know we said no genitalia, but their ass also doesn't have a crack to it. 
Right. Yeah. Which is interesting, right? Because like a lot of these effects are practical. So as you said, there's minimal CGI here. And I guess I just, I applaud the fact that this could all look terrible because we do see these girls naked very frequently. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it looks seamless and like it's doing exactly what it needs to do without being like, oh, okay, well, they just CGI'd her crotch or something like that. I just think it's really, really well done. Mm-hmm. And I, we talked about the girls going through training to get rid of their inhibitions and, mm-hmm. you know, not be ashamed, but not flaunt their mm-hmm. sexuality at all. I think it's so important and so impressive that the camera takes the same objective view because yes. it, we never eroticize the girls from right. our viewpoint, from the camera's viewpoint. We see these loathsome characters doing that but the camera is very much standoffish Mm -hmm. in terms of that kind of depiction which i appreciate is there any i mean do y'all view any of these human characters as redeemable or uh good people this is such a good for her fucking movie where you're just like (laughs) i want these mermaids to eat every character exactly exactly i would be fine with just a mermaid massacre at the end Yeah, just eat the entire wedding party is my vote. Yeah, that would have been really good. Yeah. (laughs) I will confess, I find a lot of complicated, sort of interesting dynamics with Chrissia, particularly as we move into the Mm -hmm. film. And she starts to become more uncomfortable with the girls and she's having weird dreams. But man, oh boy, was I satisfied with what happens to my tech. Because that dude fucking sucks. Yes. I I have complicated thoughts about that. I I agree. I Mm -hmm. agree. But I'm also the mindset where I'm like, yeah, but he's like a teenager. I'm sorry, an early 20s kid. Like, of course, he's going to fuck around. And he does tell her up front, you're always going to be a fish to me. And that's it. So don't get attached. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but fuck him. No, yeah, no, no. For sure. For sure. (laughs) All right. So following a burlesque performance of the banana song (laughs) we see golden and silver have become sick and i'll confess i didn't always understand how frequently they need to be in the water versus they can be out of the water and so on there's a couple of just little details about the mermaid mythology pathology i would have liked a bit more clarification on well, because this is the only time they have this issue i was also concerned about the chlorine in the pool to be honest yes Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, but they, they are tossed in the pool to recover. Uh, we get to see some glorious sort of slow motion underwater shots as they recover. And it's really beautiful. And the optimist in me thought, maybe they're going to be fine. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, what a dumb dumb. I mean, <laughs> Golden's going to be fine. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the more cynical person does well in this movie. How mm-hmm. bad is that? <laughs> it's life accurate. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, this, you know, terrible slash great house manager, I guess, he he seems to understand that he has an opportunity. So he puts them to work as strippers and backup singers. Yeah, their tits are out this entire time. No seashell bras in this movie. (laughs) So this is when we transition over to the first really big kind of conventional musical number as you mentioned trace so we head to the department store so that they can pick up supplies we're also getting a tour around the city and this number is 
great. It feels yeah. extravagant. We've got what seems to be at least 50 to 100 extras dancing around. It's just really joyous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, we get this huge crane shot as it descends upon this this small. I mean, full disclosure, this is actually my favorite uh, set piece in the film, which mm-hmm. I, doesn't mean I don't like everything else like a lot less. But like again, because this is the type of musical aesthetic that I gravitate towards, mm-hmm. this was my favorite set piece in the film. Uh, also, that the, the the lyrics, you know, they're saying the city will tell us what it is we lack. We want mm-hmm. things to be clear. Hands made filthy by dirty deeds. Can't stand to watch it go to seed. Mm-hmm. So even though they're like, oh yeah, the city's gonna tell us what we should do because we're we're foreigners here, right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, this all culminates when Silver faints, and then she is aided by my tech, and so begins a flirtatious relationship, which Golden later warns her telepathically. Yes. <laughs> Please uh, do not fall in love. I love the telepathy. This is, and because we get like the kind of like uh, aquarium sounds as they do mm-hmm. it. Yes. It reminds me of Free Willy. <laughs> <laughs> The sound design in this movie is great, particularly when we're dealing with sort of aquatic sea creature kind of whale sounds. It's like, yeah, okay, you did this. You did it well. Yeah, it's the perfect combination of kind of beautiful, but kind of terrifying at the same time, because it's a really creepy, like clicking sound at times. Uh Like it sounds like a predator, like slowly approaching you, but it also has that kind of ethereal quality. It's a great, another, another contrast that just works perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can very quickly understand that they are both like sexy and dangerous. Mm-hmm. But that's even like even these tails, which I know we've already talked about the tails a little bit, but like they are gross looking. Mm-hmm. They are slimy, mucusy. They're peeling and bleeding very frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, again, that to me is like, yeah, we're doing female puberty here. Like <laughs> this sure. is like your first period. Yeah, yeah. But there's also something otherworldly and gorgeous and. I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie. I think one of the things that stands out about this movie is the fucking size of these tails. Like, yeah. I'm so used to seeing, oh, the tails are just supplementary legs. They're the exact same size. These tails are not. These tails are ginormous. And I love this idea that they grow. Like, it's almost a mutation, which makes it feel more otherworldly, but also, I don't know, extravagant and sensational. That's the other thing, too. It's body horror. It kind of is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't find this as off-putting as I do with a lot of other variations of this. Well, I think it would be different if it was a, a human that is turning into a mermaid. Just that mm-hmm. they're already mermaids. So there's no horror for them right. because that's just what they do. That and the fact that I think they're they're not ashamed of it, right? Like right. when they see people observing and applauding and they're fascinated by their tails, they themselves seem like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, dig my tail. <laughs> Do, fuck my tail. Do what you want with it because we're here for it. I think that's another thing, especially with as many male characters kind of objectify them. Yeah. I, there have been a few critics I wrote talking about how phallic these tales are and the size Uh being like, I think that's very intimidating to the men on purpose from the movie's (laughs) perspective. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I have performance anxiety. Your tail's too big. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's fascinating. I never thought about that. I didn't even know that. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So it's time for their burlesque debut. So yes, uh, I had it down as a flight crew, but maybe it's a sailor outfit. It was giving me heavy mm. um, Kylie Minogue vibes as we like strut onto the scene. 
we see Chrissia singing. She's frequently breaking the fourth wall, which I thought was another interesting creative choice because mm-hmm. she'll sing directly to the camera, which either means that the camera is a voyeur or like a participant in this show, or we're saying like there's a breaking down of the kind of cinematic walls. Like we're not really watching reality anymore, which I think both of them work for this movie. Mm-hmm. I will say too, so right before this, um, when they're all going out, the manager of the place like gives them all a knee in the ass on the way oh out. Oh my god, what was that? <laughs> I, I Clearly whatever ritual he has to excuse yeah. himself for touching people, but uh-huh. it's a thing where it's like, Silver goes into it, it's like, yeah, sure, do it, but mm-hmm. Golden's like, don't no, touch me. do not. <laughs> she literally is like, don't even try it. <laughs> yeah, I, I fell in love with her when she jumped out of the water at the, like, at the semi-jump scare, where she's so silver is so innocent and she's so feral coming out of the water in that first scene but when she was like no don't fucking touch me that's when i was like that is my girl right there right yeah she will be fine but it sucks right though because like i respect her for letting silver do what she wants like she doesn't say she says like you know just so you know like if you do this we're gonna turn into seafoam but she's not saying you can't fucking do this because you will turn into (laughs) seafoam right yeah we only get one real fight between the two of them and even that doesn't feel as significant as the conflict with other people but I think that's such an interesting because they don't have parents that we know of in this movie. So in the, in a way, right. Golden is the closest thing Silver has to a parent. True. But yeah, I, I love this openness about, no, we have to let children explore the world on their own, make their own mm. mistakes and ha- and suffer the consequences. Like that to me is the, the, is one of the best messages I get out of this movie. Ooh, I don't know. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't think we should be sexualizing children. <laughs> God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right, so this show goes over like gangbusters, and the crowd is loving these tales. So at the end of the number, Silver kisses my tech, and Golden <laughs> looks absolutely disgusted. <laughs> I love that she's like, fine, do you, but oh, this guy, okay. <laughs> Well, and then she sings this super sad song about how lonely she is and then projects that into the world and says, but everyone's lonely. <laughs> mm-hmm. True. But in between, we do get the introduction of Triton, who is played by Marcin Kowalczyk. And I thought that his makeup design was really interesting like Mm. i was so taken with it trying to figure out okay so did he used to have horns and they were lopped off and that's why he's got the scarring but he's kind of covering it up but yeah i mean he's definitely a character where i wish that the film could have spent a bit more time unpacking exactly what his story is because it's very much framed in the perspective of okay let me give you some sage advice but also i'm not going to really tell you much about myself yeah, he was he was so fascinating to me. And I read a really good essay on this movie by Ten Backy, who I think was just on talking oh. about Sleepaway Camp. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, about how th- there's a really clear trans allegory in this movie. And right, the, yeah. the, with his horns, it, that's top surgery. And obviously later oh. on, when we see the, the ice scene, that's Ooh, bottom boy. surgery. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I, it's a really good article on Slay Away that I recommend everybody read because it's a really good read on the film. But I, I was like, oh, that's brilliant with that being top surgery with his horns being removed. Well, 
and actually even i mean i know this is like later and we'll talk about it more in depth yeah. later but um because the whole thing is when a mermaid loses their tail they also lose their voice and so mm-hmm. if we're reading that as a trans allegory right. i actually quote unquote like that as saying yeah once you uh come out as trans or once you start once you start transitioning you do lose your voice in society because society stops caring about you Exactly. Oof. Oh shit. I I like in the sense that like it is it, that, that that to it's me is like yeah. yes, but like I don't like that, you know. Right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. I'm fascinated by the number of trans readings that address mermaids in general. Like I didn't realize that Ariel like the Hans Christian Andersen slash Disney right. version was considered a kind of trans hero or like allegory and it's one of those things where you're like, oh, when you actually have to start digging into text, you realize there's a multiplicity of readings and people do appropriate figures. And I love the idea of people saying, oh, that Disney movie that you love so much. Yeah, that's a fucking trans allegory. <laughs> Ariel is ours. I'm like, cool. <laughs> fucking fascinating. Yeah, I love it. And that's one of the best things to me about this movie is you can read it as a trans allegory. Like it's really Mm -hmm, clear. mm -hmm. It's definitely a queer allegory. It's an allegory for coming of age as a woman, you know, Mm -hmm. and there are so many different readings. And I think all of the ones that I read are valid. I'm not going to say every reading is valid because somebody might have some hateful shit out there that I disagree (laughs) with. Um, But the the readings I've come across, I think they're valid. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not to be controversial and be like, your opinion is wrong, but no, but I've never (laughs) even thought of it. No, because look, we are left-leaning people in the political spectrum, and so just a little. <laughs> we look for, I'm going to say, happier readings in films, or at least, like, you know, I never even thought, like, I mean, yeah, like, what, what is there, like, a Nazi podcast out there who's, like, getting, oh like, God. Nazi readings out of films? <laughs> oh, fuck. Do not let us know. I don't yeah, want to know. Yeah, no, exactly. I don't want to know, <laughs> don't wanna know but I, I wouldn't be surprised, unfortunately. But, okay, not Nazism specifically, but it's almost, like, morbidly curious where I'm like, I kind of want to hear something like that because I want to hear them defend... <laughs> whatever reading they have on whatever film they are discussing like i have to figure out how their brain works to see how they're coming to this conclusion jesus christ can you imagine like oh we're an arch conservative podcast and we're just going through queer texts like <laughs> reclaiming them <laughs> like, oh maybe you go fuck yourself <laughs> oh my god <laughs> reclaiming this one for the straights right <laughs> Uh, okay, so we do then get Golden Song, and this is my favorite musical number of the film. I think there's something about the simplicity, where she's just walking through this kind of frozen tableau, talking about her loneliness, and it's only broken at one point where Silver actually becomes unfrozen and sees her going into the bathroom, but then when she sinks into the bathtub and... The tail is out, and we really get a full-on shot of the teeth. Uh, I recognize that we've seen them earlier than this, but this feels like a kind of coming out where she's saying, my loneliness is only doing so much to hide this. This is who I truly am. Look at this tail. Look at these teeth. I'm a fucking mermaid. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? (laughs) (laughs) 100%, right? Like, I mean... The Disney version is pacified, and I love this idea that we can get horrific, sexual, scary, but also enthralling versions for adults. I do like the teeth. However, they look very similar to the wear Zombiever teeth in Zombiever's (laughs) race. Stop it. I'll stop. That's that's my only Zombievers reference, maybe, for this episode. <laughs> maybe. No promises. 
All right, so at the club, Golden propositions a man, and they leave in his convertible. Uh, there's a brief moment where another man tries to stop her, and she ends up using her power. So there is this recurring idea throughout the film that men are susceptible to either the language or their songs. Um, huh. Okay. I mean, I, I guess they were pulling from, like, Homer's Odyssey and the sirens and stuff. But yeah, I guess I never... Mm-hmm. I guess I never put it together there was the songs that people were kind of, like almost being hypnotized by but even though they're not yes. really being hypnotized by it yeah that's how i took it like a vampire glamoring someone but mm-hmm. it's yeah. the siren version yeah yeah i i really found that it was the most pronounced when they make their quote-unquote debut as the lure and we see everyone uninhibited on the dance floor like they're getting kind of sexy rowdy and mm-hmm. i find the fact that we're doing it in slow motion makes it more obvious but there are these little sort of treacles as we move throughout the film I actually, question for y'all, because I actually could never really get a read on always what the motives were of mm-hmm. Golden and Silver. So, I mean, like, we know that they eat people. They seem to be very flippant about it. But, like, <laughs> are they planning on eating a bunch of people? I know they're here until they go to America, but it's like, right. I don't, do they need to eat people to survive? Or is that just, like, a hobby that they have? I don't, <laughs> I, I never, I never knew really how they thought about the other characters, except for Silver and Mytek. I got the impression that it's something they need to survive, but they don't necessarily have to have, you know, I need one or two victims a day to make it, but they have to consume human hearts regularly enough to keep going. And as far as motives go, I kind of see it as just two teenage girls just having fun, like two teenage girls kind of going wild. And they're like, we're going to stay here until we get bored. Essentially. It's Mm -hmm. just falling in love, kind of complicated things. (laughs) It's their rumspringer. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'll confess at times I felt like there was a kind of kinship between this movie and the Valley girl perspective that we saw in Buffy, the vampire slayer when we covered it for the Patreon audio commentary. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I like the idea that, yeah, they're they're just on vacation. They're waiting <laughs> until they go to America. But until then, they'll maybe eat a few hearts, maybe break a few hearts, do a few musical numbers. <laughs> okay, so as Golden leaves with this man whose name is unknown, but he has a nice car, we see Silver. She sadly observes MyTech having sex with a woman and apparently uses some kind of psychic powers to burst a pipe yeah so she, she goes to this kind of like oh shit like this is what he's doing and then she goes and gets her first cigarette mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so she ends up interacting with an older club employee whose name i was unable to sort of decipher but played by actor iwana belska and yeah she offers silver a cigarette she tells her how to smoke but she also says hey if you want a pussy you can get one but it will cost you your voice and what's interesting is that when i was doing my research for this and i was uh reading sarah fonseca's article she makes an insinuation that this character might actually be a trans actress But when I tried Hmm. to do research, I was unable to confirm whether that's actually true. So I don't know if it's a reading of the character or the actor or if it was just kind of like, oh, there's a fluidity here. But I thought that that was interesting because we like we've never met this character before. We don't know what her deal is. So to say, you know, like, hey, I've maybe been in your position. If that is, in fact, a trans woman, that really lends itself to a, a trans reading of this film. 
Yeah, that's actually that's like a like a metatextual level almost, right? <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, we don't know if the character is trans or not, but yeah, if the, no. the actor in question is, then it right. adds extra layers to it. Yeah, like there might be a strategic casting to this. Yeah, and not to bring the Little Mermaid into it too much, but <laughs> you know, do it, this do is it. this is clearly Ursula, Tim right? Ariel, and Ursula famously was based on Divine. Yes. So I like the parallels between the two movies there. I think there's there's a lot more winking at the Disney film than mm-hmm. is explicit, but I think perhaps that's them leaning into the trans allegory, but also kind of winking at the queerness that was hidden quote unquote in the disney film right yeah yeah because fonseca definitely addresses that kind of like association with divine and the disney film but also associates the kind of husky voice of kathleen turner to this character and i was like interesting yeah i mean why not just say pat carroll then at that point like yeah <laughs> um actually no ah oh, man i mean and not to be like oh i wish the movie had done this but i, I would have been actually really really okay if yeah we this sea witch get rid of triton and mm-hmm. we have this and she's yeah like i don't know like but i guess then, then that would give the movie a villain and we don't want I mean, again, we can say my tech is a villain of the film per se. But, oh, for sure. Yes. <laughs> but 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 again, like he he doesn't have insidious right. Uh, he's uh, just a shitty dude. Yeah, he's just a shitty dude. But he's not like going out here trying to be like I'm gonna fuck you girls over. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess I guess that would be that why we wouldn't want a sea witch type character. But I I didn't even put that together. So I love that you made that connection. Yeah. If if nothing else, there's just there's a couple of supporting characters in here that I wish we could have gotten a little bit more from. And this woman, and then there's another woman later who kind of fixes up the human family in a moment of weakness where I'm just like, what is going on here? Who are you? Is this the woman that Golden fucks? Uh, no, this is a different okay. one. Okay, never mind. <laughs> okay. So Silver attempts to entice my tech with a bath and she even invites him to put it in. And this is when he says that he will always consider her a fish or an animal. But uh, again, if you're looking at it as, oh, they're, they're able to control men with their song. You know, she, she first peels off a piece of her tail to give him basically an instrument to use as a pick and then she begins to sing to him and he seems to acquiesce like he seems much more interested and we get this lovely love ballad which shifts between the bathroom to the empty club and then culminates with an underwater bj well in her song she's saying like she'll convert if he returns her love to a life not bound up with virtue regain my former composure learn all your secrets anew so she's already i mean again she is the ariel of this movie a hundred percent yeah but i find it interesting that yeah i mean the the, the little mermaid the story is worse than the disney movie because oh this, this mermaid endures torture yep <laughs> To, on the risk like she didn't even get to meet this man she just sees him and she's like oh yeah i want you and she gets her feet every step feels like she's stepping on knives she can't talk she, mm-hmm. whatever and then they're like oh he's married someone else uh but if you kill him first then you'll be fine and she it's not a good message for little girls <laughs> <laughs> i mean no versions of this tale are right like they're they're almost cautionary warnings well and so that's what i'm saying though so i'm a little a surprise, not upset, but surprise that we keep the story relatively the same here. But maybe that's why, outside of we're adapting a story of two real life sisters, maybe that's why we have two to show the two different paths you can take. Mm-hmm. 
Jessica, not to put you on the spot, but I will echo what Trace just said. I saw a number of critics who actually said that they found the feminist message of this movie to be confused because why do we have this character giving over to this man, not killing him, allowing herself to more or less die? And I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like that's inherently part of the message. Like, Yeah, yeah I think... I think there is sometimes folly in seeking uh, catharsis in every character. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm guilty of it myself, so I, I'm i not going to say, how dare you, you know, because <laughs> God knows it feels good to watch sure. sh- shitty men what's, get what's coming to them. Right. But I didn't feel like it was confused because I don't feel like there is a clear point a to point b feminist message here so much as Mm. it is a portrait of how confusing and how complex growing up is how complex Mm -hmm. puberty is right coming into your own your first experiences with sex with love there's no good way to do it for the first time there's no good way to make it out of puberty unscathed and i think this Mm -hmm. was more about how difficult it is and how easy it is to get hurt and let other people hurt you i shouldn't even say that because that makes it seem like the onus is on the victim rather than the people who are perpetrating it against them right but how easy it is to be taken advantage of how easy it is to it's like let love sway you right yeah yeah so i don't think it's a confusing message i think it's the message is how confusing it is and how hard it is Mm -hmm. yeah that's I, i like you saying it's more of a portrait of of this phase of your life and also i mean again i go back to the end of the movie but it's like it is silver's choice to not kill this man right um because she loves him or she thinks she loves him. i mean you can be either way you want to and i find it interesting because i think and joe i feel like we've watched a lot of movies recently where characters have not have chosen not to enact revenge or avenge uh-huh. anything i was just thinking that yeah. <laughs> i know and I, I, <laughs> I tried not to say the name of that movie because that's what i was thinking <laughs> it's so front of mind right but there but there was another movie too on top of that other movie but again to me it's like uh it, it's interesting when we're like this movie ha- is giving us this message that this is okay and i view it less as no it's not saying it's okay but it's more so that people do do this people right. sacrifice parts of themselves or their entire being out of love and Mm -hmm. yes we on the outside can look at this and be like wow you're a stupid teenager this guy doesn't give a shit about you why don't you kill him (laughs) but she's also young and naive and she truly does love him even though he doesn't reciprocate it so she would rather she doesn't want to hurt him and yes i can see where you're like yeah that's a bad message because she should kill him and girls should have more uh, Mm -hmm. uh confidence in themselves but at the same time, it's not like this hasn't happened before. I mean, not not with suicide. Well, actually, probably with suicide. But with someone, like, choosing to be the quote-unquote bigger person? Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing for me here is that this is a teenage girl, right? Like, she mm-hmm. is naive. She is idealistic. And we are confronted with a different perspective in her sister. So it's not as though she's the only female perspective that we right. have. But I also think taking that step back... We have to stop asking movies to give us exactly what we want and then saying, oh, you didn't give it to me. And therefore, I don't think this is a good message. It's like, this is a realistic portrayal. We have all leapt headfirst into relationships where the person didn't have our best interest in mind. She is trusting her heart. And we can all see my tech is a piece of shit. He's going to hurt you. Golden fucking tells her. 
but she has to go on this journey because she she is in love and for a ya character for a teenage character and also just for the purposes of this film like that is what we're getting you either accept it or you don't but i don't think that that confuses the feminist message yeah exactly like there are some movies where the lack of catharsis is the message and i think Mm -hmm. there is criticism (laughs) uh good criticism there yes yeah but it's this is not the message this is a portrait of what happens it is not saying it's a good Girls thing go that do this, this happens. Yeah, it's not saying it's a good thing. It's saying this happens. I, God knows I, you know, sacrificed myself for far too many shitty partners. You know, right. this is exactly what happens. And that's the tragedy of what happens. Yes. We're supposed to. I was literally just about yeah. to say, this character is a tragedy because we can anticipate what's going to happen. And she unfortunately doesn't see it. Yeah. Well, but even when she does, even when she knows she is going to turn to seafoam, she's like, well, let me get one more hug in first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree with everything y'all are saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So one of the interesting things, and again, like if we're thinking about the feminist messaging of this movie, after this love ballad where we have seen my tech and silver sort of sing their heart and, I guess more or less make a decision that they're going to try to go for it. They arrive at the club and the men just immediately start making fun of him. Yes. And you're just like, dudes are shitty. Like, this is why you don't trust men. <laughs> well, and if we're going into a trans allegory here, right? Cause the, the one of the things they say is that they're like, Oh, next thing you know, you'll start growing a tail. And it's <sighs> like, okay, what's the, what, what is the real life version of that? Right? Like next thing you know, mm-hmm. you're going to be like turning queer on us or something. Ooh so scary oh my god exactly yeah um and then of course the real threat arrives when golden shows up and she's still got fucking blood on her mouth because (laughs) she ate that dude in the convertible nobody even notices it's like okay where's the real problem here (laughs) another way that golden is just amazing she's like it was a cow and then she Uh just like smirks at her and like walks away (laughs) just walks away (laughs) confront me confront me on it challenge me no i said it's a cow what are you gonna do See, and that, that calls to mind, like, um, Snow White to me, right? Where the huntsman gets a pig's heart instead of Snow White's heart. Mm-hmm. There's more to that. I just, I just thought that. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> you know what? That seemed like enough for me. <laughs> so we then see the girls rock out in their greenlit solo number as the lure. And as I mentioned, this is... Uh, really serving to get the crowd all riled up. And there is a woman who is watching this show, but she seems particularly disinterested. So she is played by Katernza Herman, and she will later be revealed to be a police officer. But we'll get to her in a moment. After the number, Golden approaches Triton at the bar, and he mentions that they're family, he understands her situation, he invites her to come and sing with him if she ever wants to leave the club, and he also lays out the doom and gloom very clearly. (laughs) If Silver is to fall in love with a human and he marries someone else, she will turn to Seafoam. I will say that 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 previous number, the punk number, is my second favorite one in the film. (laughs) I just love their outfits. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess, though, really, Triton exists really kind of solely as an exposition machine, right? I did see in a couple of readings that there is this kind of underlying current about trying to appease your parents. So, obviously, we have a found family in Chrysia and the drummer and Mytek. 
And then we've also got Triton, who claims to be like, hey, I'm part of your family. I know what you're coming from. I have had the same experience. And I think it's interesting that if this is, in fact, a coming of age narrative, it's like, well, to what do we owe our parents or our family? Do we try to make them happy? Do we try to impress them and so on? Right. I also think a couple of things. I think, like I mentioned earlier with Ten's reading, Triton lends himself to a trans and queer reading of the mm-hmm, movie, but mm-hmm. also it kind of answers a few questions about why people are not freaking out more about mermaids because right. we learn that sea creatures live among humans and oh. and they're known to be sea creatures. So that kind of, I like that they just drop us into this it. world. Yeah, it normalizes <laughs> it and it kind of answers a question that might have been lingering in your mind. And I like that it does it so efficiently. Right. That is too funny because I was just like, no, I'm fully on board. Mermaids exist. Yeah, no, yeah I was down. Among us. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing, right? Because I mean, again, going back to that opening scene where it's like, okay, Krisha s- screams, but then boom, we're here and oh, everyone accepts that these mermaids are here. Whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like how did she even entice them out of the water? How did she convince them to come with them? Why is everybody so chill? Yeah, you just go with it. Yeah, that's part of the fairy tale of the movie is that some things are just you don't have to explain them because you just accept them. That's another thing I love about this movie so much is that it's not reality. It's just a universe just slightly to the left of ours. That's the fairy tale world. And we Mm. don't need the standard exposition and the standard narrative formula that a lot of other movies follow, which is also really true of musicals a lot of the time. So true. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's talk a little bit more about this militia lieutenant, shall we? Because if you were only doing a cursory, surface-level queer reading of this film, here we go. (laughs) So outside of the bar, we have this woman. She introduces herself as the police, and she accuses Golden of eating the convertible man. So the women then have a kind of dance sing-off where they point finger guns at each other and then the action moves into the car and then the bedroom and we get some good tail sex and maybe murder? <laughs> um. So here's the thing. Mm-hmm. She does not get murdered because there are two deleted scenes on this uh, Criterion Okay. One of them, I think it's after the mermaids get dumped in the water by um by the family. Mm-hmm. And basically, like, Golden swims up and sees the policewoman at the pier, and they, like, you know, meet up again. Okay. The second one is an extended ending of this movie. And literally, it is... A, so, after Golden rips out uh, my text throat. Right. So, in the version we watch, we see her kind of like, oh, she stumbles, and she's, like, you know, rubbing up against this wall before she jumps out the boat and jumps in the water. Mm-hmm. The reason she is stumbling is because this woman shoots her after Ooh. seeing her eat out my text throat. <laughs> right. Okay. And that scene of her, sh- sorry, that shot of her shooting her is cut out of the final cut of the film. Huh. Okay. But so I think maybe the initial intent was to have a parallel between the two different kinds of love. We have quote unquote straight love and queer love between the two sisters and their lovers, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. But it is Golden's lover who turns on her and tries to actually kill her huh i don't like that as much i I can understand why the scene was maybe cut i like the ambiguity of this yeah well i mean this sex scene with this woman 
when she's like reverse cowgirling her and just pulls the tail up 90 degrees i was like oh man you know what you're doing (laughs) okay so let me bring fonseca back in for this because uh forgive me she's got a slightly lengthier quote here but i thought it was really well written so she says golden whose name is not lost on those familiar with the gold star lesbian pejorative Uh uh-huh indulges in an erotic encounter that is everything silver's attempt at sex with my tech who is continually squeaked out by her fishiness and post-operation her menzi-esque bleeding are not Mm. the mermaid in this intimidating form seems to be better suited for sex with cis women than human cis men who are tainted by patriarchal doctrine The detective relishes her conquest's exoticism. She runs her tongue across the spines of the mermaid's tail, then straddles her in a way that is so efficient, perhaps more efficient than any way that two humans or merpeople alone could ever have lesbian sex. Oh my god, so she thought what I thought. Yeah, Yeah. oh my god, I love being right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and Lepique, the other person that i was going to reference makes the same kind of observation that it's like this sex seems so much more sexual so much more inviting so much more um consensual like both parties are really interested in this and i don't want to say that it's like well queer sex is better sex but like (laughs) these women are clearly having a better time than anything that we see from either silver or my tech yeah and I mean, again, I, knowing now that she does not kill this policewoman, it's maybe because, yeah, she's like, yeah, I want to keep her around just to pond on my tail a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> she's the lure. Right. I mean, I did want to make an observation that the title alone is such an interesting, not colloquialism, but like a kind of funny play on words. Like the lure insinuates that you're reeling someone in. It's a fishing term, but also the way that these women sing and the way that they attract people, it has a certain allure to it, right? I did want to point out, because I didn't say this earlier, so while, yes, the original title for this was Daughters of Disco, and then the English title was The Lure, the Polish title is Korki Dancingu, which is Daughters of Dancing. Hmm. Okay. Which I think... The Daughters of Disco, especially, I like because it sounds so much like Daughters of Darkness. Daughters of Darkness. And they're yes. so similar. Like, they're both just kind of, it's just a vibe movie. Like, really queer, mm-hmm. like really beautiful lesbians. Just kind queer of. Queer people get it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like the lure as a title better, if only because I just, it's fish. Sure. <laughs> I think it's also like if you're thinking about selling to an international audience, The Daughters of Disco doesn't tell you that this is a genre film. It doesn't really even tell you it's a musical, whereas The Lure, I don't know, there's something kind of sexy, interesting, exciting about that. Well, I mean, I also like that it may, again, a lure is used to attract fish, but in Mm -hmm. this tale, the fish are the lure. Yes, exactly. Okay, so we cut to Chrissy's dream, and... This is very much where that sort of uh, maternal, paternal, familial element comes into play because she not only imagines that she herself has a tail, but that she is breastfeeding the sisters. I think this is really like striking. She does not like that though. She does not. She wakes up and does not like that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to me that she wakes up and immediately wants to initiate this sort of blando heterosexual sex with her well, husband the drummer but that sense do you think this is like a moment of i mean queer panic for her 
Kinda. I didn't read it as her waking up. I thought she was, they were in the middle and that's what oh. she was, she was fantasizing about that in oh. order to be able to enjoy mm. sex with her awful drummer husband. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. That definitely gives us some recontextualization. No. You're right, but again, like it's the you because know, after this, she displays a lot of animosity towards the mermaids. So, oh, for sure. And so that's where my queer panic was coming in. Like, does she not yes. like that she is fantasizing about this? Like, is, does she view them as too tempting, and she doesn't want that? That's how I read it. Like, she's fantasizing right. about them, but she's also repelled by them. And the, yes. definitely a queer panic instance. Yeah. See, again, like I mean, th- there are hints of all of this here. Mm-hmm. I wish it was like more screen time was spent on this. But again, I guess you could make the argument that Chrissy isn't the main character, so it doesn't really matter. It's true. Yeah. I mean, I think the telling feature is when she accuses her husband of like, why do your fingers smell like fish? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a joke in there where he says, you know, oh, well, I was eating herring and I touched it with my hands. <laughs> but the other obvious joke is that she's an older woman who is threatened by the sexual availability of these younger women like oh have you been diddling the girls uh yeah 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 actually and that, that, that's a good angle to tell the story from too right and a mm-hmm. woman who is aging out of her beauty and is this feeling more oh see yeah that's something that i would like to talk about too yes <laughs> Yeah, because I did see a couple of readings, especially those that were a little bit more on the fence about the feminist messaging, talking about how Chrysia is this figure who has a certain amount of power and authority in the burlesque club, which is, at the end of the day, a patriarchal space, right? Like, her power is actually very fleeting. It's kind of... She's like a figurehead because the floor manager and this other dude that they're introduced to later has the real power, But she ends up lording it over these girls and it's not super nefarious, but she's clearly threatened when the lure, as in the two girls and their performance, takes off in ways that her family's performance never has. Like the club was never this populated before. Yeah, I, I I really like that we once we get past the title card, we open on a really extreme close up of her face. Yeah, Like we take in her features and, you know. This is not me being derogatory, but we take in her wrinkles. We, we yeah. see her yeah, age. Yeah. And there's a similar close-up when she's playing backup singer to yes. them, where the roles are reversed. Mm-hmm. And it's such a, not an all-about-Eve thing, but there's definitely mm-hmm. the younger women encroaching on the older right. woman's time. And, you know, how long are women allowed to be sexy and appealing that's wrapped up in all of this? Mm-hmm. And see, and, and that's maybe, again, too much for this movie to dive into. Yeah. Uh, but if, <laughs> if she into. was the protagonist, <laughs> you could do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so she stops sex, and then we have Silver arriving home, and Golden tells her that she's worried about her. And then the drummer gets a kind of amusing solo number where he like air drums and everybody's into it except for my tech who's just like oh my god dad stop this when talking about horror musicals you know we don't have a ton of them you know rocky horror always springs to mind mm-hmm. but this actually does seem like both in the way it looks it looks kind of cheap you know because he's just standing in the corner with a spotlight on him right it it reminds me of a scene like right out of repo the genetic opera <laughs> yes which you and i actually both really like yeah, no, I like it. I mean, it looks it's sometimes really good, and mm-hmm. it sometimes looks really cheap. <laughs> right. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, so then the group then watch a news report about convertible guys murder and Chrissia starts side-eyeing the girls like, oh shit, who have we let into the house? Yeah. Suddenly I'm suspicious. So I will say there feels like there's a turning point in this movie where things seem to be chugging along at a reasonable pace. Everything narratively seems to be making sense. <laughs> this to me is a bit of a tipping point where things start to become a little bit more dreamlike, surreal, confusing. Things don't quite entirely make sense anymore. And you either go with it or you don't yeah i'm inclined to agree and you're talking about like just the term when like oh we're just gonna kill them and leave them for dead <laughs> more, more or less yeah so we do get a cat fight between the sisters after silver complains that you know they never get to do anything and they never see any of the money from their club act i do enjoy the kind of cat mermaid fight that the two of them have i almost wish it had gone on a little bit longer but it feels like it's not the point okay so when they're making up they they say this i i'm gonna say it's like a mermaid nursery rhyme that they would tell each other as children mm -hmm. i just want to all right let me just read this because I, i'm i'm curious <laughs> about to why why it says this so we get one jellyfish two jellyfishes i want to grow up and get all my wishes three jellyfishes four jelly beanses we want the plankton scrubbing our fins I'm sure this rhymes better in Polish. Five jellyfishies, six jellyfishoos, want to walk on the water in my high-heeled shoes. Seven jellyfishes, eight jelly babies, want to drown in the water and stay dead for ages. Nine jellyfishoos, ten jellyfishes, give me a boyfriend who isn't amphibious. Hmm. Why would a mermaid nursery rhyme end with a desire to not have a boyfriend who was like them? I guess amphibious doesn't like them anyway. Maybe, maybe. Right. Oh my god! Maybe amphibians are like the the race, <laughs> the species that they're that mermaids are racist against. Oh my god! <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. I just didn't know why that 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 nurse rhyme ended with that. Like, okay. Well, even in the middle of it, when they talk about I want to walk on the water in my high heeled shoes again, they're mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. wanting not to be mermaids. So it's right. all about yeah. feminine beauty and feminine wiles and mm -hmm. the, yeah, I. I will say I'm with you on it getting more surreal and less understandable. It's it's I still really enjoy it. And I, mm -hmm. I, I like the most confusing scene, which I think is the Fiona Apple video scene. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's confusing, though, and I'm, I'm not sure. It's a movie that I every time I watch it, I'm like, I have to rewatch this to right. get more of it. Yeah. I gotta parse this out a little. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's always really funny watching any serial film. I even think of a David Lynch film because it's where I'm like, okay, at what point in the film do I lose track of what's going on? <laughs> where did I lose? <laughs> and the next plot? time I watch it, I'm gonna I'm gonna remember that point, right. and when that point happens, I'm gonna really pay attention this time. <laughs> really focus, like strain my eyes. What the fuck is going on right now? <laughs> I look at this as, to me, it's again emblematic of what young people do right they have a certain idea of what growing up means what being sexually liberated means and it often has to do with things that you are not at the moment right so they have fins they want legs they don't have men they want men who are not like them they don't want mermen they don't want a triton they want a fucking my tech and in some ways this almost seems like 
their grounding mechanism. This is me totally spitballing. Go ahead. But it seems like a way for them to sort of get back on the same page with each other. Like, no, these are our shared aspirations. We come from the same kin. We want the same things. Why are we fighting? Oops, we've both been punched in the face by the drummer and we're knocked out. Oh, it is really funny, though, when he just walks in and punches them. My biggest question about this scene is why does everyone act like they're dead? You've only punched them in the face and sure, like they're laying there with their eyes open, but then they dump them in the water, which we've already seen is the way to revive them and (laughs) resuscitate them. That's the whole point of the pool scene earlier in this movie. Yeah, I... I this family is up. full of bozos, is what I'm saying. Well, yeah, yes. they, I turned up to they're dumb. They're, they're very dumb. stupid. They <laughs> <laughs> so after we do this, yes, clandestine body dump into the fucking river like we're in some kind of mob movie. Also, why wouldn't you dump them in a place without water? Right? Dump them in the dump. <laughs> yeah. Leave them in a ditch. Leave them yeah. in a landfill. Uh body disposal tips, courtesy of the horror queers. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> So then they go home and I think realize, oh shit, we think we've murdered these two girls. And they just go on an absolutely violent, destructive bender where they drink heavily and bust up the entire apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I-, I confess this is not, this is my least favorite number in the film because I'm just like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just don't care about this. But <laughs> I guess yeah, everyone's just fucked up and we're just watching them all um, passed out. Yeah, I mean... I want to give the film credit for showing that they're not glib about committing murder. Like these people think that they have killed people and they go off the deep end. It's not a simple thing for them because they are just a nightclub act. Like they're not committing murders all the time. Mm-hmm. With that said, it's also not my favorite part of the film. So, <laughs> so the girls do end up washing up ashore. They eat a couple who are making out on the beach. And this is sort of unfurling at the same time as we see the three humans are being treated with what I deduce to be IVs of booze by a character named Bosky Futro, <laughs> played by Magdalena Seleka. And I could not figure out if we have ever seen Bosky Futro before. So apparently Bosky Futro stands for, uh, I'm sorry, it stands for, it translates to divine furs in English. Okay. Because it's not like this is the only time we see this character. It's not an angel that we will never see again. This character is definitely out drinking at the wedding at the end of this film. <laughs> and I think I was the, the stripper with the metallic bra in one of the earlier mm-hmm. numbers. Yeah, yes. so I don't know why we've got a stripper nurse wedding guest <laughs> character, but I'm down with it because it works for this movie. <laughs> It's very bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. So as this character is administrating these IVs and they are recovering, they do sing this song where they talk about, okay, now it's done. And it does reach a crescendo as the new dawn sort of shines through the windows (laughs) and a new day begins. Yay. There you go. (laughs) Okay. So that night at the club, we see these three strut in like they fucking own the place. They are back on top. And lo and behold, the girls arrive at the club, too, and they confront them in the dressing room. This was not quite as satisfying as I wanted it to be, because Golden bites off one of the drummer's fingers, and then that's kind of the end of it. Yeah, they're just like, all right, we're, maybe it's because of the like By even coming back, they're showing them, hey, we have the power here. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there is that iconic image where the two girls are just standing out in the rain in their trench coats looking at the club. I did, again, question the logistics of how their mermaid powers work, because I was like, you're covered in rain right now. How do you not have tails? I always, y'all have seen Splash, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I always think about that scene when she's at dinner with Tom Hanks, and Eugene Levy just comes up and just sprays her with a fire hose in the middle of the restaurant. Oh, my God. And then she just tails out. Oh, my God. Tails out. Right. Tails out. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, it doesn't make any sense. But All it's right. fine. The okay. movie's surreal. It's, sure. it's a fever dream. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're we're moving on. You know, it's hey, you tried to kill us. We bit off one of your fingers. Let's all get past this. So, Golden goes to a dodgy punk bar where she ends up performing with Triton, and she absolutely kills this performance. Mm-hmm. And then her surrogate daddy says, "Yeah, you did fine, but you didn't bite the head off a bird like I did. Also, come back later when you're more rehearsed." <laughs> So yeah, she and Silver get glamour photos taken with their tails out, and they're telepathically talking about how, you know, like, hey, if you fall in love with this dude, you're going to lose your voice, and Silver doesn't believe her, and then we get to the surgery scene. So I wrote in my notes that this is the equivalent of a back alley abortion. Is that too strong? I I don't think so. I mean, they would literally have her on ice. Yeah. <laughs> Like, it's very, like, wake up in a hotel with your liver gone. Yeah. This is some shady shit. I love this shot, though. We get this overhead shot of both of them on the slab, mm-hmm. and it is, oh, it's so beautiful. And again, like, logistics. It's like, wait, how does this Oh, yeah, where'd they get the body like, from? How does the legs sense. work? Who cares? Who fucking Who cares? cares? It's, a, it's a fairy tale. Yeah. But again, I love... I love how horrifying this looks. And again, mm-hmm. we're going back into our trans allegory here. This is bottom surgery, whatever. Right. Yeah, this is, I mean, we have this image in our minds, right, of what it, it would mean for a mermaid to become human. And we have this Disney-fied version. We have mm-hmm. the Hans Christian Andersen version. But then sure. we get this. this. <laughs> the reality. <laughs> yeah, my favorite moment of this is obviously because it's a musical we're singing throughout most of this film and silver is singing as the surgery begins and as they begin to cut into her abdomen and then her voice just cuts out at a certain point when she loses the tail and i thought it was so fucking gorgeous how golden plays the song on the piano and she says you know i sang this for you or i did this for you almost like a passing of the baton where golden says like i'm here for you i will keep singing on your behalf because you have lost your voice and it oh it got me in the feels Uh Mm -hmm. so um after the surgery we see silver practicing using her new legs so she's you know working that elliptical and my tech comes home with flowers Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) well here's the thing it's because you know he's only brought them home so that he can fuck her. He just wants to be like, hey, honey, I brought you flowers. Let me stick it in you. <laughs> and so they start to have sex. And I do love the attention to detail that the bottom half of her is different from the top half because yes. she has a different person's body. <laughs> just that slight color change. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, she's not even waiting for these scars to heal before Ooh. she's trying to jump this guy's bones. I mean, she did this because she wants to to do this right like she wants them like she wants them fat she wants that dick 
<laughs> I mean, also, I, 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 I do love that we are giving this like, hey, this is actually a little uncomfortable to this mm-hmm. idea of this woman who has just gotten her vagina, who is so happy about it. Because again, oh God, no, uncomfortable is not the right word, but we're providing this explicitness to it. As opposed to something like Little Mermaid, where it's like, oh, no, look, she's fine. She's totally fine. She doesn't learn how to use this new genitalia she just got. Everything's great, <laughs> right off the bat. No, it's like, hello, you're losing your virginity. It's uncomfortable, maybe even a little bit painful. Also, you just had surgery. Yeah, you're going to bleed a little bit. M- maybe give the blood time to make its way to your vagina before you start using it. <laughs> My God. <laughs> So I'll bring in Lepique here, who talks about this scene, saying the sequence represents the struggles of girls structurally barred from access to proper care, while my text actions mimic those of uncaring and abusive partners. Mm. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> as soon as she has the, to use what was probably in my text thought process, the, the proper equipment. Mm-hmm big huge square quotes around that because that is right. not my opinion it's not but, a thing yeah <laughs> but yeah once she has that then she's good to go that's all he cares about is yes. that she has the proper body parts that he can use for his pleasure not that mm-hmm. she's still healing that she nope. needs you know you have to take care of your partner and make sure they're okay no none of that for my tech he just wants to do what he wants to do yeah. And yeah. is disgusted at the idea that sex involves bodily fluids. Mm-hmm. Like, he wants all the advantages of having sex with a woman or a young girl, in this case, without any of the ickiness that right. is going to naturally go with sex at any point, especially someone who's never had sex before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, this was the moment where I just thought back to all those critics who said, mm, well, you know, her storyline really undercuts the feminist messaging. I'm like... What fucking movie are you watching (laughs) when you see this scene? Like, he is a piece of shit because he does not respect her. He is literally just looking for any hole as a goal. He does not care about her. I mean, how do you not feel for her in this moment? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so many girls, I'm sure, have had this experience. Not just girls. So many people have had this experience where Mm -hmm. they are in love with a partner. It's their first love. Mm -hmm. And they have this really disappointing sexual experience that they had built up in their minds to be the end-all be-all. And then it's over fast. It's painful. It doesn't feel good. And you just feel used at the end, which Mm -hmm. is how he treated her. I mean, how is this not... I'm not saying that's universal for every single person on the planet, but it's it's pretty common. common, And I I think that's a pretty strong feminist message right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's showing truth right yeah. and sometimes i feel like when people see truth they don't like that yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh this made me uncomfortable oh this made me think things maybe even about myself i do not like and again like i'm going back to this whole like we're watching a fairy tale thing and things do not necessarily play out in this movie like they do in the fairy tales we're used to right yeah yeah this is very much a return to what fairy tales started out as 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 cautionary tales as horrific accounts of blood and violence and just the reality of life like things are bloody and violent and unpleasant a lot more than people want to admit Mm -hmm. this to me is where the disney hits the hans christian anderson (laughs) kind of road where you're like oh you wanted disney but what you got with hans But that's that's why I like this movie. As I said at the beginning, like it's not a movie I'm particularly entertained by while I'm watching it, but I'm just fascinated by this and I'm so appreciative of the 
candor with mm-hmm. which this film handles so many really not even taboo issues, but just issues that people don't always want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, after this unsuccessful sexual encounter, things do not get better. So we learn that things at work are not going to plan because Silver can't sing. And as a result, the house manager doesn't feel the need for her to come by anymore. He wants duos and he only wants live singing. Hence my, (laughs) you know, off-color comment about burlesque because, of course, that's like a running gag in that movie. So. I will not be upstaged by some slut with mutant lungs. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> they come to hear us sing, do they? Okay. Yeah, that's something. Just saying, Kirsten Bell is a gift in that movie. And she is wasted in that movie. Oh, yeah. The fact that she can sing and they don't let her sing in that movie is a fucking travesty. Yes! <laughs> Why doesn't the villain of the movie have a villain number? Yes! Mm-hmm. Especially when the other numbers are really fucking good, so you know that Kirsten Bell would get a good number to sing. Yeah. <laughs> also, burlesque was part of my wedding. I had a table for it dedicated at my reception. So, God. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, professionally, not good. Personally, my tech has started to fuck around with a floozy sound engineer. A floozy <laughs> sound engineer? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> It's not her fault. You know what? It's not her fault, but I'm blaming her anyway because <laughs> floozy. She's a floozy. And I love that we even get this kind of kicker. Like it's such an emotional gut punch. Like, here's just a kick to the balls as my tech throws away the pick into the gutter. <laughs> You're like, Ooh, oh wow, yeah. he's really done with her. Okay. I mean, he got her once, and that's all. Like, it's pump and dump. I'm done with you. You have no interest in me. I have no interest in you anymore. Yeah. There's so many other fish in the sea. <laughs> I really, I applaud this movie's resistance at using that line of dialogue. <laughs> Maybe it's not a Polish thing, right? Okay. So, hard fucking left turn. We just transitioned directly to the wedding. (laughs) Like, I could not believe the goal of this movie to just be like, and now they're getting married. Bam! I will say, fucking bring up Little Mermaid again. Uh The fact that we are on a boat Mm -hmm. and there is a wedding and we do not have an army of sea creatures attacking all the people on this boat. (laughs) I need crustaceans and I need seagulls. I need a starfish on the nose and I need a bride losing her shit at all of this thing and then turning into an octopus yes right yes okay <laughs> i think you've already gotten that maybe in a different format you know we're getting a live action little mermaid next year and all i want to do is see a bunch of seagulls tear apart melissa mccarthy's face <laughs> god i love her but uh, sorry ursula's face yes. <laughs> i was gonna say let's just isolate that sound clip and use that to weaponize against you later <laughs> Oh my god. Um, yeah, no. It, 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 it's again, it's this time jump where it's like, wait, 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 what's happening now? What is going on? The movie's yeah. like, hey, we only have ten, like five minutes left of our runtime, so we gotta, we gotta <laughs> skip a few things. Yeah, we gotta hustle shit along because everybody's having fun. We are singing along. I did think it was gauche that we have Triton here, and he is cooking fucking herring on this boat, sir. <laughs> These are your people. What are you doing? This is cannibalism. I mean, oh, yeah, the movie never really dives into that either. Mm-hmm. We don't, maybe that's all we need. We should know that, hey, this is acceptable for them. 
I mean, I guess he's still vacationing, as he says. We're just vacationing here. Don't take it so seriously. Yeah, it's, I always eat humans on my vacations. Right, <laughs> yes. Also, I need to point out that my text hair in this sequence is fucking terrible. Like, it was kind of scraggly crimped before, but now it is like Euro trash, and I cannot stand it. <laughs> Despicable. True villain status update. And I will point out that the uh, the wedding singers mm-hmm. are the Rowinska sisters. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, I, I love that they get to cameo in, quote-unquote, their own story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not about them. It's about mermaids, though. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, really, all we have left in the plot, really, because it's just, uh, Golden's like, all right, eat this fucker's throat out so you don't turn into sea foam. Mm-hmm. Triton says the same thing, and Silver's like, okay, I'm going to go. And we get, I think, this really restrained moment where we really get to just wait and see is she going to do it we see the fangs out they're slow dancing will she bite him or not and ultimately she doesn't the sun comes up and she turns into foam and i love that my text response is oh. basically "Ooh, i'm covered in what <laughs> so th- that's that's the thing right like i can make so many excuses and be like i oh, just a guy like mm-hmm. i mean like it's just a random girl like i mean like whatever that reaction right <laughs> made me so fucking angry to the point that whatever like she chooses to throw it out like whatever i would like rip him apart oh rip yes. his face off yeah. i don't care Ugh. yeah yeah she was never a person to him no. and just that he's like ew i have soap on me you know uh-huh. <laughs> oh it's my wedding day i'm wet now <laughs> but i will say Missouri's performance like wh- the eye acting when because you can see her make the decision mm-hmm. not to kill him yeah yeah. And it's so sad. It's so, again, tragic, like we've already said. It's just, I, I love the moment, even though I don't like what happens, obviously. Mm-hmm. Oh, but man, watching his throat get ripped out. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's incredibly satisfying. You just see Golden run up and just jump on him and rip out his throat. You're like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for the whole movie. Right? uh the true good for her moment of this film (laughs) until she goes back into the water and she is alone uh she is alone in this empty empty ocean because the last shot we have is just of empty ocean it could have been a shot from jaws i'm interested okay so jessica i'm gonna throw this over to you because i don't see this as a sad moment you know it's obviously very upsetting that silver has disappeared in this way but the fact that we're getting this as a point of view shot of Golden's experience under the water and it's beautiful and serene and empty, that she doesn't have to deal with any of that bullshit human drama anymore. <laughs> she is free and we as a proxy point of view shot get to be free with her. So I found this ending very liberating. I did too. Like, again, this movie is all about competing extremes. We've got mm-hmm. the tragedy of Silver's death and right. the, the human reaction to her death, which trivializes it and makes it seem like an inconvenience rather than, you know, this cataclysm that she's lost her sister. Fucking my deck. Oh my God. But, <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm with you. I see that as very liberating because, you know, she's got the whole ocean open to her. She's got the majority yeah. of the planet open to her. She's, a, she's being herself. She is mm-hmm. true to who she is, 
living her own life away from these fucking assholes you know but no i'm with you it's and i was really shocked by that shot the first time i watched it that we didn't have a view of her Mm -hmm. in the ocean to end we have just a view of the open ocean but that's i'm with you that's how i interpret it is she has the whole world open to her now because she's she embraces who she is and she's not going to give herself up for anybody else Mm -hmm. Hmm. okay so that is the lure is the lord everybody <laughs> thank you all for coming thank you jessica for coming on this journey with us yes thank you i'm like i said i'm thrilled i love this movie so much and i'm so excited to be on the show <laughs> well I'm, we're excited to have you <laughs> <laughs> but um okay well before we announce that we're covering next week jessica please tell everyone where can they find you on social media you can find me on Twitter at We Who Walk Here. I always share my writing, my podcast appearances, my cosplay pictures, yes. everything. <laughs> Promote that fucking cosplay because you yes. are A+. Oh my God. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes. So follow me on Twitter at We Who Walk Here and come say hi and we can talk about how much we love the lure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot-button issues with some of our journalistic peers. And if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook HorrorQueers group. If you want to show me and Joe some love that is not financial, please go rate and review <laughs> us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, I'll take it. Yeah. Reviews are wonderful. We love them. Mm-hmm. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. This month, we've got episodes on our favorite horror movie sequences and non-horror movies. The social media slasher movie, Sissy. The horror prequel double feature You Didn't Know You Needed and Ty West Pearl and Orphan First Kill. And an audio commentary on a Wishmaster. I'm sorry, Wes Craven Presents Wishmaster. Yeah. Just in time for its 25th anniversary. Yeah, put put that Wes Craven in your mouth. Come on. <laughs> but didn't you know Wes Craven directed Wishmaster? It says oh so God. in the box. <laughs> my god imdb uh, trivia <laughs> i know uh joe yes what are we talking about next week oh my god trace it's been four fucking years i have talked about this movie so much but we <laughs> waited for the 35th anniversary to talk about hellraiser finally oh my god y'all heard us talk about hellraiser 4 then you heard us talk about <laughs> hellraiser 3 uh-huh. and now we're talking about not hellraiser 2 not hellraiser but hellraiser two. yeah the og <laughs> it's, it's all about julia cotton people get on board it's not about the centibites it's not about the centibites they have eight minutes of screen time in this movie mm-hmm. so uh but as all of you know this is joe's it's movie, my baby so Please come and listen to him wax poetic about that. But until next week, we can cross out the lure. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. (laughs) 